Welcome to the Health Trust Candid Conversation podcast. I'm Crystal Duggar, Vice President of Clinical Services at Health Trust. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this episode, we're highlighting a portion of a Health Trust COVID-19 vaccine current state and hesitancy webinar focusing on logistics, where a panel of experts discuss topics like distribution phases, the importance of maintaining childhood vaccinations, single dose versus multiple dose, and COVID-19 variants. If you are looking for an in-depth discussion about COVID-19 vaccines, a behind-the-scenes look at distribution, and an informed discussion on vaccine options, this is a conversation for you. I encourage you to share this information with your friends and family and coworkers. Jason, just from your perspective, what's the current guidance in regards to the timing of second doses. And I know there's some talk out there in the media about, well, and even um, in governmental representation itself about pushing for a single dose strategy with these two vaccines to try to get more vaccinations in people's arms Mm -hmm. and delaying the second dose. So what's your understanding of the current ASEP guidance around, you know, going ahead with the second dose or pushing back? I think that's a good question. And I'll, I'll certainly let the others weigh in here too. Uh, but, but current guidance is um, we need a little bit more evidence um, on, on, a, on only having a one dose in relation to that. Um, they have come out and stated that extending up to six weeks uh, for the mRNA vaccines is reasonable at this point. Um, and and they, they kind of understand that some people aren't going to show up right at their three week or four week uh, times and and the way the vaccine clinics are set up, that can be troublesome as well. I know that much of the South ran into uh, what we called Snowmageddon last week, and uh, you know vaccines were impacted there. So, current statement is um, allowing for up to six weeks um, within the mRNA, and that we still need a little bit more information on uh, what a one dose, a sole one dose, would look like. Uh, for those mRNA vaccines. Okay, great. No, thanks. I appreciate that. So, Michelle, I'm going to pull you into the conversation here, if you don't mind. So, I know that you and your team, obviously, are used to annual vaccine distribution, although this, with the cold chain logistics, obviously, was different. But I did note, um, and then you were on one of our podcasts recently, that you mentioned that the Department of Health was able to get a million doses out in less than eight weeks. So, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit Michelle, to the logistics of rolling that out and some of the best practices that you've seen here within the state of Tennessee. Yeah, it has been a, a monumental undertaking. So just to put that in context, you know, we uh, we run the Vaccines for Children program here um, at, uh, through the Department of Health as well. And we do about 2 million Vaccines for Children um, program vaccines over the course of a year um, with about 800,000 kids in the state. So we did half of that volume um, in in the state of Tennessee in about eight weeks' time. Um, and so it, it has been a, a massive undertaking. It has taken um, literally all hands on deck. So every health department, um, and these are health departments that were already um, pretty much tapped out and exhausted from contact tracing and identifying and 
testing um, and still trying to, to maintain the things that health departments are, are needed for, um, who are now turning to running drive-through vaccination pods every day, um, often on weekends and holidays, um, but also our hospital partners. Um, there are many hospitals across the state that are vaccinating in high-throughput pods um, for the community, not just for their patients. Um, we have vaccines out in independent pharmacies, about 150 of those across the state. Um, FQHCs, federally qualified healthcare um, centers, and, um, and and even into retail stores like Walmart. Um, almost every Walmart in the state now has COVID-19 vaccine, and this week we're um, beginning to get vaccine into some Kroger stores um, through the federal program. So um, it has been a, a tremendous undertaking, um, everything from enrolling providers, uh, which we started doing back in April and May of 2020, knowing that this would become a vaccine-preventable disease, um, through making sure that they have appropriate storage and handling equipment, uh, appropriate information on how to handle the vaccines, um, scheduling for our high-throughput pods, um, which is, has been challenging, um, getting information out, making sure people understand the importance of the vaccine, and then setting up all of the the tiered structure for how we prioritize who gets vaccinated. Um, initially, we only had the Pfizer vaccine for the first week or so. Then we got the Moderna vaccine, um, two different vaccines with uh, similar technology, but different second dose timing schedules. Now, if we get approval for the Johnson Johnson vaccine this weekend, we'll have Johnson and Johnson vaccine on the ground in Tennessee by Tuesday um, of next week. So um, there, there is a lot to juggle. Um, and then all of those vaccines have to be uh, administered and then reported into TENIS, the state's immunization registry, so that we can keep track of all of that. Yeah, so obviously a huge undertaking. And you just said something, Michelle, that I hadn't thought of before, and, and not being a pediatrician, I probably wouldn't. But you mentioned something, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly, that has this effort and all the concern, and we'll get into this later in the conversation about the vaccinations, has it delayed the usual vaccinations in, in children? It has. We've seen a tremendous impact um, nationwide and also in Tennessee on routine childhood immunizations, um, especially in March and April of 2020, when we were down by 40, 50 percent um, in vaccinating children under the age of 18. Um, because, you know, if you recall, we, we had our first case in Tennessee March the 5th, um, which I remember because I was on call. Um, and um, you... Um, and, and then right there, everybody kind of got paralyzed. You know, the, the doctors didn't know how to open. There was no PPE anywhere. Um, no one had uh, ability to protect themselves. Parents didn't want to take their kids to the pediatrician. Health departments got pulled to do contact tracing, and so they weren't providing vaccines. Um, and so we are behind uh, in vaccinating tens of thousands of kids in the state um, because of this pandemic. And, uh, you know, that is not something that we can afford to continue 
continue to have. And then this perfect storm of schools, many schools beginning remotely. And so those shot records that usually come in to register a kindergartner or a seventh grader weren't coming in, weren't getting checked. And to the, to the school's credits, they have been trying to survive this pandemic and just keep schools open. So they have not had the ability to even follow up and make sure children are, are properly immunized. Um, so we have a lot of work to do over the summer to try to get these kids caught up before they start back to school in the fall. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Michelle. I think that's something that we haven't really heard raised here. So I appreciate that perspective very much. And then Schaefer, I'm going to go um, to you, if you don't mind, and kind of back to the same question that I asked Jason in regards to the single dose strategy with Pfizer and Moderna. What have, what have you heard about that? And what's your perspective on trying to do that versus sticking with the two dose strategy that was in the trials? Well, I mean, I guess there's probably an official answer and then maybe a non-official answer <laughs> in this. You know, we wanted to, you know, I'm, I think all of us want to get as many shots and as many arms as possible because uh, that's the way we're going to establish uh, or, or eventually reach herd immunity. And, you know, the, you know, Moderna data and there's some Pfizer data. And I think we're seeing the AstraZeneca data that shows we got a pretty decent efficacy, uh, vaccine efficacy after that first shot within the first couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, after the first two weeks um, before the second dose. And so conceivably it's reasonable to just put out one dose. Uh, there's arguments for both. And I think, you know, being a physician scientist, like I'm gonna lean more towards where the data sits and say, we need to try to get it uh, the way that it was uh, studied. Uh, but if there's, you know, for instance, if there's extenuating circumstances, it makes me feel better knowing that that, uh, that first dose, you know, helps. Uh, and is, is, is it worth, is it, it is worth, you know, having the advocacy of that first dose uh, if you can't get to the second dose. And so extenuating circumstances like Snowmageddon, <clears throat> Uh, you know, you don't have to panic and start getting in cars and drive around in the snow to get people their second doses. You can wait for a second. Um, yeah, fortunately, it doesn't. I, I think the 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 number of vaccine availability is is going to pick up uh, very quickly, and so we, we we may not have to have have to keep asking that question. Right. Right. No, I hope we don't as well. And based on what Jason just reviewed briefly, hopefully with J&J being right around the corner, a single dose shot, which obviously would be um, incredibly welcomed at this point, hopefully that'll make an impact. So I want to um, just move forward here and just share a couple things, if I can advance. There you go. Um, let's talk just about this for a minute. And I know Jason touched on it, um, but I think this is something that has everyone understandably significantly concerned. And so the variants that are on the screen now are the three that we know the most about, the 117, the 1351, and the P1 out of Brazil. The 117 out of the UK is in about 44 states at this point. Um, the one out of South Africa is in you know, maybe a dozen or so, and then P1, I think, has been in four or five states. And Schaefer, I'm really going to throw this one to you in regards to the variants, and I know there are others. There's, there's more than just these three, but what do you think about 
Well, first of all, maybe you can explain to the audience that uh, my understanding is that this is part of just the natural evolution of the virus itself, and we're going to see more, right? So this isn't the only list that we're going to be dealing with. And then how is this going to impact, you know, the current vaccination strategy that we have and what we need to amend to that strategy moving forward? Yeah, I, I think you know this is uh, this is no surprise uh, to everyone. I think you know these these variants are the the ones that have kind of gained notoriety here um, because they seem to be important as far as transmissibility. And so, if we can, the way I I like to think about these is you have to have like a just think about a 3D model. And so there are 3D models of the spike protein. And then on the spike protein, there's this receptor binding domain that is important for binding your human uh, receptors that get enveloped into their human cells so that allows for uh, infection. And so certain mutations allow for tighter binding uh, to the human cells and therefore you don't need as many viral particles to cause an infection. And so that's, you know, that's probably what's happening with the, the UK and the South African strain. And, and so the repercussions of that, the mutations that lead to the different protein manifestations on these receptor binding domains they also can lower the binding ability of antibodies that are either already in somebody who's already had COVID-19 or specifically some of the, the monoclonal antibodies that are out there. And I think the big concern is that they can uh, avoid uh, you know, some of the antibodies that are made when you get some, some of the vaccines. And you know this, this is, um, they are, they are able to study these uh, in the in the specific lab sense, I guess, that they can show like a reduction in neutralizing titers observed with the Moderna and the B1351 uh, variant. And so uh, these, these are very concerning. And the fact that they've already happened and that, you know, you say we found uh, the UK strain in, in 44 states and, uh, you know, the, the, the South African strain and several other states, like we feel like it's probably just like you would say, if you see a, a roach in your kitchen, like, you, you know, it's not the only roach there. Uh, unfortunately, it's just the one that happened to get caught in the daylight. And so uh, while these, you know, the, the detection of variants tends to be delayed, I think, and just because of the, the nuances and the nature of, of lab flow. And I think in the past two months that the ability to do surveillance and, and crunch down that timeline to publish these variant genomic sequencing has gotten a lot shorter, but traditionally it takes about an average of like three to four months before uh, a positive COVID test gets to the publication of that genomic sequencing. Uh, and so, you know, by that point, the variant is is you know likely widespread, um, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you, Schaefer, and you just you just touched on it, but perhaps you can help educate educate us in regards to what the national 
um, surveillance strategy is? I mean, is every patient that's tested, are those all sequenced or is it just a, um, a sampling of, or, or how, what's the surveillance mechanism behind all this? Yeah, that, that's, uh, it. so, and, and Michelle may be able to chime in here as well. I think, um, you know, originally, I think we did a pretty poor job of doing surveillance uh, and, you know, developed the National SARS-CoV strain surveillance, uh, you know, system that was able to do several hundred uh, surveillance uh, samples uh, nationally a week. And since then, that has, they've developed a collaboration between reference labs and universities and, um, and several of the commercial labs such that we can do a lot more per week now. I think there are several labs that could potentially do, you know, several thousands themselves. However, part of the problem with this is, uh, one, most of these labs are already overwhelmed with just the need to do the testing itself. And so, you know, they're at max capacity just doing the testing, uh, much less, uh, you know, having personnel to do the sequencing. Um, and, and two, uh, you know, there are supply chain limitations, especially for the commercial and, and, and reference lab and hospital labs. Uh, and uh, for instance, that's, I think, you know, I work in a network of, uh, you know, several hospitals here in the Southeast United States. And I don't know a single hospital that's not directly affected uh, by, you know, the laboratory supply chain uh, uh, just being impeded uh, by the strain that's been put on by all this testing. And so I, I think, you know, that's, it's multifold, but it's getting better because of the collaboration between the CDC and private and uh, their public labs. The other thing, I, I, I don't know if Michelle will be able to speak on, but the, the ELC uh, program, which I, I know the Department of Health in Tennessee is, uh, you know, a, a big part of, uh, they get funding and have a, a large lab collaboration where they're able to uh, quickly ramp up uh, testing and surveillance. I don't know how much of the uh, genomic sequencing they're doing, but um, uh, it's certainly the ELC program plays a large role in also ramping up the ability to do this uh, surveillance. Yeah, yes, ahead, we we have, um, you know, we're fortunate in Tennessee, we have one of the best public health labs in the country um, with some really excellent um, laboratorians who are there directing those efforts. And we were one of the, the first states uh, in the country to be able to start doing testing at, at a state public health lab. Um, I don't believe they're doing um, genomic sequencing on SARS-CoV-2 yet there, although we have done sequencing um, for the hep A epidemic um, that fortunately ended before COVID hit. Um, but I, I think all of the isolates are still being sent to CDC right now, and um, we're particularly interested in sending isolates on individuals who are having infection after their second dose of vaccine to see if that is um, just, you know, within that 95 percent, um, no vaccine is 100 percent effective 
uh, space or whether or not these are um, some variants that that we're seeing um, causing that breakthrough. But again, that that sequencing takes a, a good bit of time, um, and and it's often much later than we would like to be able to to do anything informed uh, as a result of the information we get. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit healthtrustpg.com forward slash the source forward slash candid conversations to listen to more episodes of our podcast and visit the Health Trust education page at education.healthtrustpg.com for more information on COVID-19, vaccines, and vaccine distributions.